Let me read for you from Acts chapter 2. Uh, it's, it's on page 911 uh, in the, the Bibles in front of you, or uh, you can open up. I don't know if Steve, has, if, if Steve gives you permission to open it up on an app as long as you stay on that app. Um, and if that app has social features that you turn it off uh, during this time. But whatever your chosen method, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, it's a, it's a very well-known passage. Let me read that first, and then, we'll, and then, uh, and then I'll give my greetings and salutations. Uh, and they, uh, this is just the people that are responding um, to Peter's sermon that Luke records in Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Now, good morning, Trailhead. It is good to be with you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, for those of you with young kids that might be finding out for the first time and you thought you got an extra hour of sleep and they got up at 4 o'clock instead of 5 o'clock this morning, uh, I'm sorry. That's a harsh reality. If it makes you feel better, the late service hopefully will get done before it's dark outside. Um, but uh, I am glad that you are here and uh, I will tell you, if you're, if you're here and, and you're with young kids, and this was like a harsh reality that they don't sleep in an extra hour this morning, I will tell you, things will, this time will pass, and kids will start sleeping in, and they'll be able to like take their own baths and put themselves to bed and all that kind of stuff. And then at that point, all you have to worry about are complicated relationships, uh, fender benders, insurance rates, college costs, etc. But you will be able to sleep. So, um, it is a great honor uh, for, to be with you this morning and to fill in for Steve. Steve is a wonderful friend. Um, I have known him uh, for a long time, longer than Trailhead uh, has been around, uh, longer than, than our church has been around, and um, I have great stories uh, about Steve, but I don't tell them because he has some about me. Um, and uh, there were some things this morning as, as I, so he did not give me a topic to preach on. And I said, is there anything in particular you're talking about? Anything you want me to, to preach on? Anything you want me to say that you wouldn't say? Uh, those types, just so you know the back, back room conversations that, we, we, that pastors have. And he's like, no, just take your pick, which is horrible. It's horrible to do that to another person. So if there's anything this morning that offends you, anything that I say that might be questionable, that you're like, I don't know about that, which there might be a few, um, we'll all blame Steve. Uh, so, um, but seriously, I love him deeply and uh, count it a very high privilege to be a friend of Steve Mizell and Lauren Mizell as well. Uh, maybe even more so, uh, Lauren. Um, so, uh, this past winter, spring time frame, early 2022, we preached through uh, the Apostles' Creed, which was, uh, and now you may sit here and go, well, Apostles' Creed, that's not scripture. And I would, and, and call, don't leave just yet. Um, it's not, but it was early on in the church and it had to pass through 
a tremendous amount of scrutiny to make sure that it upheld Scripture. So before we're quick to say, well, the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture, it is based heavily on Scripture, and it was an early creed that the church used since they weren't going to quote all 66 uh, books of the Bible. This was an early creed that the church used uh, that held the church together. Uh, and when the pandemic hit a couple of years ago, we started reciting the Apostles' Creed together as a church. It was, it's a way that the church universal uh, and the church historical uh, has held together in these agreements. And we started doing that um, when, every, when everything hit and we were shut down for a while. Uh, we've continued on. And so then this past year, we thought, well, we should probably preach through it so we know what we're saying when we say this. And uh, I love the image. It's like a suitcase that you can take around with you. It's portable scripture that you can take around with you and then open it up and unpack it, both for your own mind and heart and for the minds and hearts of others. So I thought, well, I'll go back to that sermon series and I'll find something that hit me um, that I really enjoyed. And this one that hit me that I, that I loved but was hard was from the phrase, I believe in the church. Now, the way that it says it in the creed is, I believe in the holy Catholic church. And once again, calm down. Catholic there is lowercase. It is, means universal. And we'll get, we'll get to that a little bit more. But I believe in the church. Um, when I first wrote those words, like in, in preparing the sermon for this, I first wrote those words, and I immediately felt a pit in my stomach. And I had so many questions. And I got a little choked up. And the thoughts and the questions that came through my mind when, like, am I really going to say this? I believe in the church. Uh, my old pastor in Texas, when I was in seminary, um, he, he was given an interview one time, uh, or he was interviewed for, for TV one time, and, and they asked him what he thought the biggest issue facing the world was today. Uh, and and um, and his answer was brilliant, and it has stuck with me uh, ever since then. And they said, what's the biggest issue facing the world today? And he said, man, I, I feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. I look around, and I know what to do, but where do you start? If you guys don't laugh, this is going to be long. <laughs> um, does the church have issues? <sighs> yes. Yes. Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, as she has for a very, very long time. Um, we've, we're going on a good 6,000 years of the people of God being a very messed up people. But today, today we're not going to talk about all the issues of the church. Today we are going to present her beautiful without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. The way she was designed to be and by God's grace being continually washed over with the water of the word, the, day, the way she will one day be holy. Uh, so, let's get to this beautiful picture of the bride as presented here in Acts chapter 2. So we'll start in verse 42. 
um, 42 and 43, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So from the very get-go, what we see is that the people uh, who would respond to this message of the resurrected Jesus and put their faith and trust and allegiance in him uh, and would follow him, that they would gather together and begin to practice this new kingdom reality. Now, what I mean by that is this new kingdom reality and this new kingdom reality. Does that make sense? There is a new kingdom at hand, and they are practicing what that means. What does it mean to follow this Jesus? Um, And this would become the church. These people who would get together, who would study the apostles' teachings, who would share meals together, who would give, uh, and who would operate in favor with one another, this would become the church. And never... In the history here, was this treated as something optional? It was never treated as um, like one of the potential things you could do this weekend? To become part of the church, this is, if you ever read through the New Testament letters of Paul, this is amazing. To become part of the church became more central than your ethnicity. It became more central than wealth and your economic position, which was huge in that day. It became more central than politics, than social structure, than any of your previous ways of life. It was becoming a completely new people, and not just a new person, but a new people. Now, to get some of these particulars out of the way, um, before before we really dive in here, Uh, A couple things. Christ died for his church. He died for his bride. Ephesians 5 tells us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, for the church. He died for his church. It's his bride that he is washing over and making beautiful. Now, um, can we walk in nature and enjoy the beautiful trees and enjoy the majesty of the mountains, the power of the ocean, the serenity of the woods? Can we meet with friends over the Bible and wine and cheese or perhaps in collegiate context at 1.30 in the morning at Steak and Shake for a Bible study? Um, can we talk and talk about Jesus in life? Can we read the Bible in the morning, have our personal devotions, all of those things? Yes, they're all great and wonderful and please do not confuse those things with the church. They are fruits of the bride. They are not the bride herself. Um, I had a friend of mine who is, uh, he was an older businessman and, uh, and was in charge of a, a big men's, large men's ministry uh, over in our neck of the woods, um, over across the river. Uh, and, um, and he would tell me, I, I hung out with him when I was younger and arrogant instead of older and arrogant, and we would, uh, we would hang out and he said, I, I kind of like hanging out with you. I usually don't like hanging out with pastors. And I said, that's very kind. I like hanging out with you, and I usually don't like hanging out with businessmen. And, um, but he was in charge, and he, he talked about this men's ministry. So those men, those Bible studies, that's, that's my church. And he had had, he had had issues, especially he got to know pastors in, in behind-the-scenes level, and I totally get his cynicism. Um, but he's like, those men, this men's ministry, that's my church. And I said, listen, I totally get it. I totally get it. 
And I would absolutely agree with you if you added communion and baptism, women and children, and qualified over shepherds. I would be 100% on board with what you're saying. I know there's lots of issues with the church in our day. I get it. I have them. But the church throughout Scripture is, is never optional. We know Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, which is radically different to the Hebrew Scriptures. But we are saved as part of his people, as part of his bride. We gotta put up with other people. Now, what does that mean exactly? It's a good question. Uh, Francis Chan uh, was speaking at a large church in Orlando, I think, and he was holding up his Bible, and he said, I read this, and then I look at this, and he pointed out to this large church in Orlando, and he said, and then I read this again, and then I look at this, and then I read this, and I look at this, and I wonder, how, how did we read this and, and come up with this? And that's a fair question. What does it actually mean to be the church? Um, it's not a building. We're, we're in the process of losing our building, so I'm really trying to remember that well, in fact, when you look at church history, I think this is fascinating, total side point. In church history, church buildings were actually not necessarily buildings, they were campuses. There was a chapel there where they held worship services, but oftentimes there was also a hospital, a clinic, a place for shelter for the homeless. Uh, it, it had, they were campuses, which I think is, is really a cool thing. Um, the church is not a cool logo. Um, it is the people of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the elect, the called out, kingdom of priests, a remnant. We are forged and formed in covenant with God and with one another in submission to Christ as our risen king. And we gather together often to take part in the sacraments of communion, baptism, to encourage and study and learn and grow and pray and remember and practice our new citizenship in covenant with God and with one another. Acts chapter 2, the church gets off to a phenomenal start. I mean, it's beautiful. We got five whole, five whole verses, and it's beautiful. This is a Genesis 1 and 2 moment. Um, and they are delighting in God and his provision. They're studying the apostles' teaching, communing with one another, praying, having favor with everybody. Can you imagine that? There's, there's your miracle right there. It was amazing. And then literally before the ink dries, Paul's writing to churches in Galatia and Thessalonica and going, all right, guys, the circumcision thing, we gotta talk about this. This is, not, this is not who's more Christian. And then he has to eventually has to write to the Corinthian church, and that's all kinds of fun there. Uh, Christians gone wild. And so... When people say we need to be more like the New Testament church, great news and bad news, we are. We are. This is the New Testament church. Um, so to break down, like, what is the call of the church? Uh, Michael Bird, uh, he is Australian. He wrote a book called What Christians Ought to Believe. He's also got a thick systematic that I've uh, enjoyed. I'm, I'm not, I haven't read all the way through, but... Um, I appreciate the way that he breaks this down. The Nicene Creed says that the church is one holy Catholic, meaning universal, uh, and apostolic. So let's walk through that. The church is one. 
There's lots of denominations, there's lots of variations on, on, uh, on what the church looks like, but the capital C church is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four. And yet, Ephesians two, I have four written down. That's Ephesians four. It's Ephesians four. I get, I get lost. Steve, we blame Steve. Um, uh, and, and, and so there's this oneness, and yet there are differences. And Paul spends a lot of time working on harmony and unity, but he also addresses and accounts for the differences in all of these various cities that, that, these, that the church has taken off. We have a lot of different ways of seeing things and expressing things. Tim Keller would talk about uh, four main aspects of a church, uh, but how they kind of break out, right? There's this passionate worship, or this zeal for evangelism, or this, like, we, we must care about justice, or the deep, uh, the deep issues of doctrine. And what we see is that all the denominations, what we're good at, what we specialize in, we tend, we tend to say, that's what we really need. We need a passionate encounter with the living God. Don't give me these social things, right? Or we need to care about the poor, and we need to love. Don't give me this doctrine nonsense. Have you ever noticed that? The church is all of these things. And if we can practice maybe a little bit of humility, we can actually see the diversity of these practices in the global community of the church. This is what Michael Bird says, and I think it's beautiful. I'm gonna qualify, I'll, I'll stand on this. I think it's beautiful. That if we can see diversity, it can help us overcome some of our blind spots in our own traditions. Catholics remind us of the ancient roots of the church. Baptists remind us that Christians are Bible people and that's churches for believers. Methodists remind us about the importance of piety and personal holiness. Presbyterians remind us about God's sovereignty and God's covenant promises. Pentecostals remind us that God's spirit is still with us and it's not on break. Anglicans remind us to hold together the universality of our, of our ancient faith with the protest of our Protestantism, and Lutherans remind us to remain true to justification by faith. And this is what's powerful. Even in all of these different denominations, each one of them have a special place for the Apostles' Creed of what we can actually agree on. We start off oftentimes with what we disagree on, but they could all hold to this Apostles' Creed. And I know that in our day especially, we, we decry the church as a place that has tended to lack diversity. Um, and, and, and I get that, but I also think it's critical to be reminded that the church, the capital C, followers of Jesus, far and away, not even close, not even a close second, is the single most diverse organization ever to exist. And the culmination of all of this will be every nation, every tribe, every tongue who holds to the claim of the risen Christ. Amen? We are one. And the church is to be holy. It's holy because we're marked by God as his holy possession. We are the bride of Christ, and Jesus loves and defends his bride. I have two sons, and if you ask them, they, they will smart off to my wife, and I will tell them, what do you think I would do if any other person talked to my wife that way? 
You'd hit them? I'd hit them. I don't, I don't hit my sons. I just threaten to when they talk to my wife like that. Jesus defends his bride. And it's not just when she's talked bad about from outside forces, although certainly he will. But it's also when she's manipulated for personal gain, when there's false accusations, when she's used as a marketing ploy for some pastor's insecurity, when she is abused and her authority is used not as life-giving but as coercive. You better believe that Jesus will make account for he will make right what has been wronged in his bride. Hebrews 13, 17 is my favorite and least favorite uh, uh, verse in the Bible when it comes to being an elder. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I like that part. I, I, I think that part's pretty good. But then, the, then it kind of gets qualified a little bit for they, uh, they will be held accountable as those who have to give an account. That part scares me. That keeps me up at night. Jesus will make right what has been wronged. He will drive out salesmen and, sh and shysters and he will expose them. God is not mocked about his treasured possession. Um, I hear a lot about how the world treats the church. And the first great commission we have, Genesis 12, is that God, uh, that, uh, where God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. The systems of the world are always going to be in friction and against the church. We should and don't ever fit in with a, any other kind of world system. The church doesn't fit in with it. It's always going to give us trouble. But as followers of Jesus, I'm going to encourage you. I think it would do well for us to be less concerned about how the world sees the church and to be primarily concerned about the church's call to bear faithful witness to the resurrection of Jesus to the world around us. In other words, to be holy is not necessarily about the people of Jesus being perfect and sinless. Um, and it, it does mean to be set apart, but keep in mind, it means to be set apart not only from irreligious, but also from the religious. And if you don't believe me on that, read the Gospels. Jesus is very distinct from the religious. <clears throat> um, but maybe the best way to put it is, if we are God's treasured possession, is it obvious in the church, then, what we treasure most. Uh, there's, a, I, there's an old saying, I don't know if you've ever heard, the, um, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you, right? I, I don't particularly care for that, because it often, I think, involves what we, what are we gonna put in, what, what do we put on trial for? Like, what's the evidence? If the evidence is Jesus, then I'm like, yeah, I'm totally for that. If the evidence is like our morality, I have issues with that. But let me give a little bit of twist on it, all right? Let me, let me use it for my purposes here. Uh, if the church, if the bride of Christ were to be put on trial for being more loyal to Jesus than cultural power, political power, church size, our way of doing things, our doctrinal positions, our comforts and preferences, you name it. If the church were be being put on trial for being more loyal to Jesus than to the ways of the world, would there be enough evidence to convict us? A holy people is not a perfect people, but is there evidence 
that God's people treasure him and his grace and his greatness and his mercy more than our personal preferences. The church is one, it's holy, and the church is Catholic. Um, again, lowercase c uh, means universal. Uh, we already touched on this a little bit, but if, if you step back and you look at the geographic locations and the differences and the, and, and the income levels and the various cultural wars going on in each of the regions where Paul visited and where he wrote letters, it is amazing the gap that the, the gospel spans. These are radically different people. A lot of them don't like each other. And the gospel spans to all of these different cultures. All of the go eat popcorns, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Those are very different regions. And the gospel spans to all of those. And Paul's writing letters to them. And yet there's, there's similarities. In every land, every scope of the world, there's ultimately one church. Which means that you and I may have more in common with somebody in Russia or in China or in Africa or in South, South America than we do with maybe a neighbor or a family member if we have Jesus in common. And, I, and let me just say this. We should be greatly relieved that God does not have like a special mantle over the fireplace for the Western or American church while the rest of them just like collect dust. God knows the church in China suffers from great persecution while the church in America suffers from great distraction. And he is interested in washing over all of us to present us beautiful without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Um, I heard a funny story. It was a friend of mine who was leading a group of missionaries. Uh, one group was from France and one was from Germany. And they were doing a project together somewhere in Europe, and I can't remember where. Uh, and I, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but he said something like, the German missionaries were frustrated because of some of the language the, Frank, the, Fran, uh, the French missionaries were using, and the French missionaries couldn't believe how much beer the German missionaries were drinking. And so they were both like, and I was like, God bless us. Oh, we are a glorious, fickle people that God is making new. The church is one, it is holy, it is universal, and it is apostolic. So what does apostolic mean? Here's what it means. The true church is not identified by secondary issues. I want to say that again and let the reader understand. The true church is not identified by secondary issues. It is identified by holding to the teaching of the apostles concerning the gospel of Jesus, which is namely this, that Christ has lived, he has died, and he has risen again physically and that one day he will return. We say this often. I'm, I'm, I would presume that you probably say it often here, but we say it often at, at, at our church that Christ lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, and has risen from the grave, conquering sin and death. So that as it is with him, so will it be for those who put their trust in him. Uh, there is a, there's an old interview with the late atheist Christopher Hitchens, uh, and he's interviewing, uh, being interviewed by Marilyn Sewell, who's a Unitarian minister in Portland. Uh, Hitchens, in my opinion, I have a great deal of respect for Hitchens because I think he had the most solid argument for atheism ever, which is basically this. At the end of the day, I don't want to believe there's a God. It's kind of hard to argue with. If you don't want to believe that, I can't give you empirical truth, right? Uh, that's a side note. Anyway, um, 
So he's doing an interview, and their discussion ended up kind of being more about uh, Miss Sewell. And she says this, the religion that you cite in your book, God is not great, is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinctions between a fundamentalist faith and a liberal religion? And this is what Hitchens said. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, then you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. The apostolic faith, the true church, is not identified by secondary issues. It is identified by the life, death, burial, and physical resurrection of Jesus. The imputation of those things, how we do those things, how that carries out in our life, the role of the Holy Spirit, all that stuff is glorious and makes for fun lunchtime or really happy hour discussions. But the, but the true church is identified by a faith held in the glorious resurrection of Jesus. And the good news of the risen Christ. So I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church and then the next line in, this, in the creed is this, I believe in the communion of saints. And we'll, we'll land here. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 43 through 47 says this, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, one of the biggest struggles I have with the American church um, is, is not the stated held beliefs that we hold. Um, but the application of those beliefs. Like when, when we're beating people upside the head with the message of grace and forgiveness, I don't get it. I don't know if you've ever like listened to somebody or read somebody where you're like, I believe the same thing you believe, but I don't think I believe it the same way you believe that. That seems harsh. Um, this passage is actually beautiful. The response that these people had to the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they started gathering together. They started sharing meals together. They started opening up to one another. They started giving so that none had need. Uh, it, it's beautiful. And then we mess it up again. Which is good because we have a faithful Savior. Um, the church is not only called in our relationship to God, but we're also called in our relationship to one another as the bride, and then as a bride, our relationship then to the world around us. We are called to be communal, and we live in a time of incredible individualism. We're called to love and serve, not just those who agree with us, but those who disagree with us. This is light in the darkness, city on a hill, salt of the earth, all of that, um, and, and just some of the implications here. They gave so that none had need. They were, they were radically generous. Um, in our day, we're, we're in a unique, I'm, I'm going to give a little caveat here, and this is where you may get mad at me, uh, if you're not already, which is okay. 
blame Steve. Um, we're a unique time in history. We have nonprofits. We even have government organizations that do a lot of providing a fa uh, financial assistance for the poor and, and the outsider and the widow and the orphan. And I'm going to take just a second here. Uh, I'll give you a couple of book recommendations. There's a phenomenal book uh, by a Christian, John Dixon, who's Australian, uh, who wrote a book called Bullies and Saints. And it's great, and it's great to listen to. There's another book by uh, Tom Holland, not Spider-Man. Um, he is an English uh, historian. Well, not Spider-Man that we know. Uh, he's, a, he's a British historian, and he wrote a book called um, Dominion. It's like 900 pages. Audible. Oh, Audible. I've stopped saying I read books. I'm like, have you ever listened to this book? Um, it, but it's fascinating on a history of the church. And neither one of these guys hide the good or the bad. And what you need to know, there was no such thing as a civic responsibility of care for the poor until the church came along. In ancient Israel, yes. But until the church exploded this into every nation... There was no concept of a civic care for the poor. Constantine, we can argue and debate his conversion all day long and the good and the bad, and there was both good and bad by Constantine's conversion. That's another sermon. Um, but one of the things that he did was Constantine saw the church's care for the poor and said that needs to be, that, that needs to happen. And so this is, as only politicians can do, this is one of his famous quotes. The wealthy need to support the state. But the church needs to support the poor. And he gave the church tax exemption. Fast forward on a very, very complicated relationship with the church and the state. And before too long, they get totally intermingled. And uh, Queen Elizabeth in the 15, late 1500s issues a decree where essentially you would go to every parish in, in, in England and they would survey the amount of destitute, the amount of poor uh, people in that area and how, what was the great need. And then each family would be assessed a tax to help care for the poor and the destitute in their community. Now, if you are a fiscal conservative and you look at taxation as theft, you have to thank the church for that. And at the same time, if you're a secular progressive and you're like, this is not the church, this is just common human decency, this is what we do. No, it's not. It never had been until the church came on the scene. We can, argue about, we can argue about what's the best way to do that and how should that happen and all that kind of stuff. And I could go into a whole other sermon if you want me to. Um, but the church and the care for the poor, like it didn't exist until the church took root and started doing this. And then it became kind of a civil responsibility. And that is because of the church. So this is radical. We don't look at this as radical. It is radical in time and history. Um, all right. Uh, in our day, there are a lot of programs to help with money. There's nonprofits. There's ways to get bills paid and all that kind of stuff. And listen, I think if money could solve poverty, I think we'd, we, we would have done it. So I don't think money solves poverty. Poverty. Um, so yes, we should give so that none had need, but, but also I think maybe even more so than money in our day, it might also be about the giving of time and hospitality and energy and love. Um, in, in, 
in our current culture, poverty is actually decreasing. But do you know what's increasing at radical proportions? Loneliness. That's at pandemic level. We are at a time of radical individualism which has failed in history over and over and over again and will fail again. And we're already seeing this play out. We have radical individuals who form tribes because radical individuals can't be radical on their own. And they form tribes to be different like everybody else. And all of these tribes now are getting more and more stringent on what it takes to be in our tribe. And we have to be more of what they're not. And so we're pushing against each other, the horseshoe effect, and, and actually becoming more like each other. And the goal line keeps moving further and further to the left or further and further to the right. And if you want to be a part of this, you've got to keep being more and more radical. And for our side, for our people, we want endless forgiveness with no atonement. And for the other side, we want endless atonement with no forgiveness, unless you become like us. Not the church. Not the church. May it never be. The requirements here are that we all need radical grace and forgiveness, and that our founder, our king, our CEO of our organization has paid the tab, provided atonement. He is our entrance fee, lest we think we have to pay with our own promises. He is our example, and the best, uh, unless we think that we are left to our own whims. He is our victor, lest we think we're still exposed to the will of sin and death. And the only person that should feel uncomfortable in the church is the proud and the self-sufficient, and the one who sees no need for grace and mercy. The hurting, the broken, the confused, the humble, the questioning, the sinful, the economically settled and struggling should feel the warm embrace of our risen king from his people who are experiencing his grace and forgiveness. So, trailhead folk, go out of your way to welcome everybody that walks through these doors. Everybody that tries to find parking. Everybody that turns the wrong way down this street. Does everybody do that the first time? All right. Because whoever was coming this way, I, was, I could tell I was a tourist. I always, I'm like, I'm from St. Charles. You'd be amazed how much that explains to everybody. Um, welcome everyone. Everyone should feel welcomed here. And then, and then we get to do life together, right? That statement that I, nobody knows what it means. Then you get to have the awkward, good, hard conversations as, you, as each of us kind of work through our junk toward trusting Jesus more and more, being exposed more and more, growing in holiness, dealing with our sin and shame and guilt and all that good stuff. Our world is chaos. Does anybody need convincing of that? Okay, good. Our world is chaos. The church is being pulled from every which way. But may we walk humbly and confidently and beautifully as the bride of Christ. And we will do that when we treasure him more. There's beauty even in the midst of chaos. I want to show you a picture, and, and I'll, I'll finish with this uh, illustration. Anybody know who that is? I was going to be really impressed. This is Vedran Smilovich, also known as... Now, does anybody know who that is? That's what I thought. Also known as the cellist of Sarajevo. He was the principal cellist for the Sarajevo Opera. He grew up in a musical family. As a child, his father would organize them into a group. 
uh, called Music to the People. And they would go as a family, a little Von Trapp family, they would go out and they would play classical music and give public performances. And he lived in Sarajevo when the siege of his city began in April of 1992. Uh, armed forces of Bos Bosnian Serbs uh, shelled the capital city. Uh, they were pointing snipers against civilians. Particularly cruel siege that lasted nearly four years. May, uh, May 27, 1992, an artillery shell exploded in front of a bakery where people were waiting in line to try to get bread. Killed 22 people and injured 100 more. In protest, the next day, Smilovich dressed in his formal wear for a classic uh, concert, and he carried a chair and his cello out into the courtyard where he sat and he began to play Tommaso Albanani's Adagio in G minor as a memorial to the massacre. And when he finished, he picked up his chair and his cello and he walked back into safety. He repeated this performance in the square every day for 22 days as a memorial to those who were slain. He would vary the times of day when he would do it. Uh, he would play for funerals and gatherings. And he always had to be careful because snipers would actually go after funeral gatherings to enforce a particular cruel type of pain. And he played at graveyards and other sites of destruction from the shelling. In 1993, uh, he was able to flee for the safety of Ireland, where I think he still lives today. It's my understanding, in Northern Ireland. I think this image is twofold. When the church prizes Jesus among everything else, despite our differences, despite our arguments and our disagreements and our preferences and the way we should thing, do things and the, the songs that we should sing and the pace and the tone and should you have drums or not have drums and which doctrine is the most important and how do we all... When the church prizes Jesus above everything else, despite destruction, our own suffering, chaos and danger and grief and angst in our own lives, when Jesus sits in the middle of it, he produces beautiful music. And then when the church collectively prizes Jesus above everything else, above personal and political agendas and warring cultures, telling people to stay quiet if they're not like you and then questioning why they don't ever speak up, uh, when we love someone different than us and just listen, when we hold our, con our convictions firmly but humbly and when we resist mic drop comments on every possible statement, when we disagree with the best of an opposing opinion and not just low-hanging fruit, when we open wide the arms of grace and forgiveness and mercy that we have received, when, some kid, when someone's kid runs crazy and spills your coffee and you give a compassionate look instead of I can't believe, I would never type of look, when we sit with those who mourn and hurt with them, when we celebrate with someone who got the promotion that we wanted or the grade that we thought we deserved, when we strive to understand people as image bearers and not as opposing agendas, when we steward our voice and our influence for true justice on behalf of the disadvantaged in our world, then the bride also bearing the image of Jesus 
sits in the middle of the battle, which is not always appreciated, and that's okay, and produces a beautiful melody. So here's what I want to do. Can I ask you guys to stand? And this is not scripture. I'm going to say that again. But at the end, at the end of your handout, we have the Apostles' Creed. And I'm going to ask if you would mind if we would say this together. A creed, once again, that is not scripture, that binds churches in Edwardsville, Illinois, in St. Charles, Missouri, even like Chicago and New York and the West Coast, and then Africa, China, all the other places. But I feel like we have more differences with the coast and, you know, and, and it binds us together, Cubs fans and Cardinal fans. Mizzou fans and everybody else. <laughs> Let's read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and of life everlasting. Amen. Jesus, may it be with us, your bride. Make yourself known in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.